One of the most damaging things that can happen in any relationship, and we have all, I think, probably felt this, is when trust gets broken in a relationship. What happens inside of you? What happens in your heart when someone breaks your trust? When someone you thought would never behave in this certain way behaves that way? When someone you thought would never say things like this says things like that? It really shakes a relationship, doesn't it? I mean, how many relationships have ended because of a break in trust. We've all felt that. But what I'm describing here can also happen in our relationship with God. In the way people relate to God, the same thing can happen. Now, the difference is, it's never God's fault. God hasn't ever done anything wrong. But it's, it's very common for people to get some bad ideas about God... And then those bad ideas get blown up and people feel like God has let them down. For example, it's really common, it's really easy for people to decide they're going to try, they're going to try Christianity. They're going to try some Jesus thinking that that God, if, if I do Christianity right, God will make the circumstances of my life better. God will will keep me from getting a diagnosis I don't want. God will keep my kids healthy. He'll keep us all safe. He'll keep me from losing my job, whatever it is. We may not say it that overtly, but that's why we try this thing called Christianity. And then bad stuff happens. And I feel like, man, this God didn't come through. I feel like I can't trust God. It's really easy to hold God accountable for promises God never made. That's one reason why we study here. We study this book. It's one reason why I will tell you it's so important to to know what's in here. Because if I don't know what God really has and hasn't promised, I will do the same thing. I will anticipate or think or hope that God will behave in a certain way. And when that doesn't happen, I'll become disillusioned with who I, who I thought God was. I'll feel like he has let me down when he hasn't. God will give us a hope and a joy that will sort of keep our, our souls buoyant through bad circumstances. But he never promised to keep our circumstances what we wished they would be. Does that make sense? This is where I would like a little audience participation. Does that make sense? All right. Sometimes I, I talk to myself enough. I you know, don't want to be doing it now. I hope it does, because now, with that in mind, I want you to imagine that you are a, a Jewish person alive in the first century, around the year A.D. 58. If you were a first century Jew, by that point, you have... You have 2,000 years of national and religious heritage in your past already by the first century. And you, you are one of God's chosen people. That's a pretty special thing. You're part of the people that God 
revealed himself to through a burning bush and lots of other uh, supernatural events and then the scriptures themselves. And you have always believed, by the first century, you have always believed, you'd be wrong, but you've always believed that your way into heaven, your way to be acceptable to God was, be, was through the rules God set forth in the law. God showed you what was right and what was wrong. And if you are good enough at, at keeping these rules, and, and some of those rules involve some sacrifices that make up for when you, it, that your behavioral obedience is what would make you right with God. It's what you always believed. Then you hear about another Jew, a Pharisee. His name's Saul. He comes from a town called Tarsus. He also goes by his Latin name, Paul. And even though he's a fellow Jew, you, you begin to hear that Paul travels around. He's become converted to this weird little sect called Christianity. Actually, back then it was called The Way. And this guy, Paul, travels around and he, he starts usually with Jews. And he tells Jews, their Messiah, the king that the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures promised, has already come. And he was murdered. He was executed. His name was Jesus. He was killed on a cross. And now, Paul says, the new covenant that the Hebrew scriptures promised has already started. It was a new, it's a new covenant in his blood. He's the king. He's the Messiah. But his kingdom won't start for quite some time. And now, and Paul tells people, he tells Jews, it's impossible for you to get to heaven, to be saved, to get to paradise, whatever you want to say it, by being good enough to get there. It's impossible. The only way you, as a Jewish person or anyone else, is going to be found acceptable by God is if you believe that when Jesus went to the cross, what he was doing there is having all of the wrath that you deserve for your sins poured out on himself. And that by believing, you will have life in his name. Paul calls that message the good news, the gospel. Now, if that's you, if you're hearing that as a first century Jew in AD 58, one large barrier to you believing that, buying that, I think is you wouldn't think that sounds like God. You mean us keeping the law, us keeping the rules, us being good won't make us acceptable in God's sight? Doesn't that mean God has pulled the rug out from under Israel? Paul, if what you are saying is true, if I stand before God as a Jewish person, I'm in no better shape than my pagan Gentile neighbor. Well, that can't be right. Doesn't that mean God's broken our trust? What does the gospel of Jesus Christ do with the Old Testament promises God made to Israel? What does the gospel do with all of the behavioral 
commands in the Bible where God says, here is how I want you to behave. What does the gospel do to those things? Paul is going to deal with those questions throughout the rest of the book of Romans. He's going to kind of scratch the surface of them today. The beginning of chapter 3, you can find this on page 1127 of the Bibles that are in front of you if you want to pull one of those out, 1,127. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 is our scripture passage. Let's read it together. Paul writes, and he is anticipating this question coming from the Jews in his audience. So it's almost like someone else is saying this to Paul in verse 1. Then then what advantage does a Jew have? Or, Or what's the benefit of circumcision, of being Jewish? Now Paul answers, verse 2. Great benefit in every respect. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, even though every man is found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms, Paul says. Verse 6, may it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged because I'm a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, Why not say, let us do evil so that good may come? And Paul says, people who argue that way, their condemnation is just. It's a difficult little passage. It can be divided very easily into two halves. It should be, I think, divided into two halves. And that's what we will do, the first four verses first. Where we pick up today in chapter 3, it's hard to tell just from our passage that Paul is talking to Jewish people specifically. But if you were here last week, in chapter 2, Paul made it very clear he is calling out the Jews and his audience. So that's who he's speaking to. And Paul has a lot of experience, himself being a Jew, he has a lot of experience speaking to Jews. And Paul's normal pattern, by the time Paul sat down to write this letter to the church in Rome, Paul had already started his career as a missionary for Jesus Christ, the ambassador of Christ. In his normal routine, he would go to a town and he would start where? He would start in a synagogue. He would start with the Jewish people. Paul said the gospel was to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. That's where he would start. So Paul has heard all of the arguments Jews will, will give of why they don't want to believe Paul's message of the gospel. He's heard them all before. I think Paul probably had a few of them, at least questions, even at his conversion. But Lord, wait a minute, what about? So what Paul does here, he's anticipating arguments he knows are going to come from the Jews in his audience about the gospel. So that's where we start. 
The first one is this, what advantage does the Jew have or what's the value of circumcision? Here's that argument. Jews want to say, we're the chosen people of God and if what, if what you are saying is correct, Paul, then there's nothing special about Israel. We're not really God's chosen people. He just told us we were, and now he's pulled that rug out from under us. If what you're saying is true, then that's what we get. That's why we're going to reject this, because that can't be true. And he asked it in this question. So what advantage is there to being Jewish as pictured by circumcision? Paul begins to answer that in verse 2. He says, actually, there's lots of advantages to being Jewish. I think that's supposed to be a surprising answer. Because Paul just got done saying, as an individual, your Jewishness is going to be of no help. It's not going to be an excuse. If you stand before God in judgment and you say, wait, 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 God, before you render the verdict, you need to know I'm a descendant of a guy named Judah. Paul's already said, It doesn't matter what family you were born into. As an individual before God, you are worthy of condemnation. He's made that crystal clear so far. So when when Paul asks this rhetorical question, so what advantage is there? I think we should anticipate Paul saying there isn't any advantage, but it's not what he says. In fact, he says there's lots of advantages to being Jewish. Now today, Paul's only going to mention one. He says, first of all, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. If you want to hear more advantages, come back in a few months when we get to chapters 9 and following. There will be more advantages. But today, Paul says, I'm just going to give you one advantage, and that's this. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, the ancient scriptures, the original promises God made that we have in the Hebrew scriptures. We call it the Old Testament. That is the advantage, the main advantage of being Jewish. That's an advantage that uh, requires a little explanation. Clear back in the beginning, third chapter of the Bible in Genesis, sin enters the human race and God promised through sin would come death and boy is the human race in a mess. And as soon as the first sin was sinned, And God had promised death. Death's always a separation. Here's our our consequences for sin. Someday I'm going to physically die. My body, my spirit's going to separate from my body. Because of my sin, though, I'm also separated from God. That's spiritual death. And if that doesn't change during my life, I'm going to face eternal death, which is separation from God forever and ever and ever. That's what happened because of sin. Fortunately for us, God is gracious. And right away, he promised a savior. Genesis 3.15, first time God said, I'm going to undo this curse sin has brought on the world. It's going to come through a human being. He said a descendant of this first woman will be born, who I always call him the, the serpent crushing curse reverser. The savior. Someone's going to be born, a human being, we were told is going to be male, who's going to redeem mankind from the penalty of sin. First promise of the Savior. 
Now, the most important theme in the entire Old Testament is who will that Savior be? And how will we know it's Him? Guess who God gave that information to? Israel. That's the advantage. God obligated himself to send a savior because he promised and God will, he won't break your trust. He keeps his promises. As soon as God promised a savior would be born, it would be a human being, that was going to happen. Whatever family or nation God allowed that savior to be born into would have a real advantage in figuring out who that savior was. God picked a guy named Abram. He was an Iraqi just a guy. He was a pagan. He wasn't wasn't chosen because he was good. He was chosen because God had to pick somebody. And his descendants became Israel. And God said, Abraham, I'm going to make this huge nation out of your descendants, and I'm going to bless the whole earth through your family. That family is Israel, and the blessing is the Messiah. And I'm not going to take time to do it, but we could go through scriptures in the Old Testament that let us know That Messiah is Jesus Christ. He would be born in where? Bethlehem. Born of a virgin. Right? And lots of other ways we know that Jesus is that Savior. So, there was an advantage. There's a great advantage for someone to be born into Israel because they had the information that pointed to Jesus I want to say at their fingertips, but at least in the scrolls in the synagogue. They didn't have Bibles in their houses like we do. But the information was there. That's a great advantage. Now, if they reject that information that points to Jesus, does that mean God hasn't been faithful to Israel? Not at all. That's what Paul says next. There's a great, so what advantage is there to being Jewish? There's many advantages. For one thing, you guys got all the information, or Paul would say, we got all the information. What then? If some do not believe, does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? No, absolutely not. Paul begins his answers it in verse 4. Just because the bulk of Israel reject the information that points to Jesus as the Messiah doesn't mean God wasn't faithful to Israel. Does that make sense? I I tried to think of of an example. Let's say uh, one of our local service organizations, the Lions Club or the Rotary or Helping Hands or I don't know, the Grand Poopahs. What did Fred Flintstone have? Remember what the... Wasn't he the Grand Poopah for a while? Anyway, um, One of our service organizations, they decide, you know, the fair is always coming up. And one gracious thing we could do, what kids love at the fair, you know those wristbands? That if your kid gets the magic wristband, right, they can ride, he can ride all the rides he or she wants through the whole fair, no matter what time or when it is. You know what I mean? Those wristbands. I mean, they can ride and ride till they throw up their funnel cake and then get right back in line and ride some more. It's awesome. And the Lions Club or the Rotary, whoever it is, we want to bless some kids with those wristbands. But we're not just going to come to the fair and give every kid a wristband. Here's what we're going to do. Whoever shows up at 
the city offices over here on St. Patrick's Day next month. If you show up that morning at the city office, whoever shows up is going to get a wristband. That's the decision they make in their meeting, and they think, well, how do we let people, how do we let people know? It's their wristbands. They can hand them out however they want, but here's what they do. They go to Morgan Gockley's classroom. They pick out just one class at the school. Not because they don't pick Morgan's class because they're fantastic kids. They're not. Ask Morgan later. She'll tell you. And they, some, some representatives uh, go up and they say, hey, here's the deal. It's not just for you guys, but you guys are the only ones. You're the special class we're telling this message to. Whoever shows up, St. Patty's Day, city office, are going to get these wristbands. That's it. And they leave. Now, St. Patrick's Day comes, and the word has spread. Lots of kids show up. But let's say most of Morgan's class, they don't buy this. They're like, we're not falling for this. I'm sure they're selling something. This sounds too good to be true. They're probably going to make us do a fundraiser or something like that. It's like, nah, I just don't. And so most of Morgan's class doesn't show up to get the wristband. But they've told other friends who told other friends who told other friends. Sure enough, people show up. They get the wristbands. The fair comes. And Morgan's class, those kids, they see all these kids with these wristbands. And they're like, well, son of a gun. It really was real. Now, do Morgan's kids, they can run back to the city office and look in the windows. And there's nobody there and knock on the door. They can go over to the Lions Club bingo stand. Do they have any right to get angry and say, those are our wristbands? How come all these other kids have wristbands? We were the ones you picked. We're your special class. You are wrong. Where's my wristband? I want my wristband. Would they have any right to make that argument? No. Did it make the Rotary or the Lions or Helping Hands any less gracious because they refused to believe. That's Paul's argument. Jews always want to raise their hand and say, we're God's chosen people. Where's our wristband? <laughs> Paul says, listen, God has been faithful to you. You have a tremendous like, historical advantage, but it's no guarantee if you don't take advantage of your advantage, your advantage becomes disadvantage. That's what Paul says. And this Paul says, God is going to be proven faithful. If, if, if nobody gets a wristband, God's still faithful. If God's going to be faithful, even if every single person shows up and is, is judged as a liar. That's the first uh, argument against the gospel that Paul knows he will hear. What about us? Aren't we God's chosen people? More on that in chapters to come. But that's not the only argument Paul knows is coming from his fellow Jews. Again, Paul's been around. He's heard them all before. And the most common argument against the gospel from Jews that Paul, hear, Paul hears can be categorized like Big picture this way. Jews always tell Paul, if what you are saying is true, 
then you are teaching that God no longer cares about sin. If what you are teaching is true, if what you're teaching is true, Paul, that I won't be found acceptable in God's sight because of my morality, my behavior, because I tried really hard, I was self-disciplined, I gave up that stuff, I started doing this good stuff. If that's not going to count for anything, the only thing that's going to count in my judgment is whether or not I believed on Jesus Christ. If that's all that matters, then what you are actually teaching people, Paul, is that God doesn't care if we're obedient or not. Paul heard that. Oh, so you had better. If you want us to get on board, Paul, you had better add some law to God's grace. You had better tell people they are not getting to heaven without obedience to the law over and over and over. That's what Paul is answering in verses 5 through 8. Disclaimer, these are some of the hardest verses to understand exactly what Paul is saying in this whole book. So I'm not going to fine-tooth comb these like we do normally. The argument will stay the same. There are places in here where some people say Paul really means this. Some people say Paul really means that. I'm not getting into that this morning. Because the overall picture of what Paul is saying is the same no matter what. Verses 5 through 7, you're really teaching sin doesn't matter. One way Paul has heard that argument raised in debate goes something like this. Okay, Paul, if what you say, if the gospel you proclaim is true, we have heard you say, Paul, that God gets glorified. God gets made to look really good by taking filthy, wicked sinners and washing them white as snow and making them appear righteous in his own sight. Is that true? Does God do that? Yes, that is what Paul says. But the argument continues this way. If that's true, then every sin I sin, or every sin, the Jews wouldn't say it that way. I'll turn it around. My wicked pagan neighbor, the sins that he sins are actually just doing God a favor. They're giving God more opportunity to show how gracious and forgiving he is. And if that's the case, God would be wrong for judging us for these sins that only give him the opportunity to make himself look like a better forgiver. Does that make sense? That's the argument Paul has heard. God can judge people for sins that he can just forgive anyway, and he can make himself look good by forgiving sins. It's why Paul, it's ridiculous, it's preposterous, it's not true. It's why Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms. He's letting, it's a footnote, he's letting his audience say, I don't believe this. It is true. That the miracle of miracles, as far as we are concerned, is that by believing what Jesus did on the cross so pays for our sins, that God will make a, a wicked wretch like me look as righteous as Jesus Christ when it comes to my judgment before him. 
But it's an amazing miracle. The angels, Jesus told us the angels go crazy in heaven every time it happens because they know what the holiness of God looks like and how incompatible with sin he is. But this argument that, well, then if he can just forgive me, why don't we just make ourselves as dirty as possible so that God's car wash looks like it does an even better job? And why not say, right? So the first part of the argument is, why am I still being judged as a sinner if my sin does God a, a favor, gives him the opportunity to glorify himself? Or second part, second way this argument's worded here, why not say, let us do evil so that good may come of it? This one shows up lots of places, still shows up today. The argument goes something like this. If all I have to do is believe in Jesus Christ, then what you are really teaching is that I can just go sin whatever, the sinniest sin, sin, by the hair of my sinny sin, sin, that I want to sin. Because God no longer cares about obedience. That's what you're saying, Paul. You know how Paul answers this here? He doesn't. We have to wait for that. He will. I'm not going to leave you hanging. But Paul doesn't answer it. But he does let us know that that argument is false. Here's how. He says, the people who say that this is what I'm teaching, let's, let's all go do evil so God will forgive me and look more forgiving later. Paul calls that slander. You know what slander is? Someone slanders you. If someone says damaging information about you that's false, that's slander. If someone says damaging information about you that's true, it ain't slander. <laughs> it's just the truth. It might be gossip, but it ain't slander. And Paul says, it's slander to say that the gospel I preach gives people a license to do evil. And he says, people who believe that it is, their condemnation is deserved. They don't, they don't get it. They don't get it. Now, it's not just Jewish people who bring arguments like this. This is still, I believe, the most common argument against the gospel today. Preacher, if what you are saying is correct... If all I have to do is believe in Jesus Christ and my sins are forgiven and then I'll be saved no matter what sin I commit later. If that's true, then you're saying God doesn't care what I do or how I live. You ever hear something like that? We will all, in fact, if you haven't at least asked that question, I don't think you've ever heard the gospel. It's a very logical question. And it comes from people who like to hold to what Paul will say, a righteousness of our own. Here's what that means. I grew up in a Christian home, or maybe I came to know Jesus, and I have matured. And I don't sin all the sins I used to sin. And I've had to really make some tough decisions in my life. I had to end some relationships that were not safe. I had to quit some things I used to love. I had to whatever. 
And now I see that guy who claims to believe in Jesus Christ. But he's, he's not where I am. And I want to say, there's no way that guy is saved, rescued as a Christian. But if I'm not really careful, what I will do is I will hold to a righteousness of my own. What I mean by that is, I want some credit for where I've gotten. I mean, I've tried really hard. I've set up all this accountability. I've done this self-discipline thing. I've made some difficult decisions. And I want that to count for something. And so when I see someone else who is still sinning the way I used to sin, I want to say, not her. She ain't in. And if you're going to tell me that she is saved because she believes in Jesus Christ, when I can tell you the list of sins she still sins, then I'm out. It's a very common argument. But where's the rub? Because Paul just said, if we believe, we can sin whatever sin we want to sin. If that's what the gospel does for us, we're slandering the actual gospel. So how's this thing actually work? You know what I should say? Come back in a couple chapters because Paul doesn't deal with it. I think he just leaves them hanging here. But I don't want to leave you hanging. So I'll say conclusion. Some of this doesn't come from this passage. But here's what I want to send you home with today. First, we were taught today. Being born with ready access to the promises of God is an advantage, but it is no guarantee. I am so thankful, rebellious as I was, uninterested in the things of the Lord and Christianity as I was, I am so thankful I was born to parents who drug me to church against my will. So that there was some information in my heart so that when I made a wreck of my life, I thought, I think I know where the help is found. It is a tremendous advantage of being born around some of this information. But it is no guarantee. Just because your parents drug you here this morning. If you are here to make your spouse happy, if you come all the time, it doesn't mean you are okay with God. Just because you walked down an aisle, just because you got on your knees, just because your parents made you go through some classes when you were 13 or 14 years old, when you went up and the, the guy put a little disc of bread that sucked all the moisture out of your entire head. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've eaten it. It does not mean you are okay with God. But there can be a great advantage for here having heard some of the stuff you have heard. But if you don't take advantage of the advantage you are given, when you stand before God, he will say, I never knew you. Second and third. We are not rescued from sin and set free from sin to go back to sin. That's not the gospel. That's a slanderous attack on the gospel. But we have to, have to understand and remind ourselves what our real problem is, what our actual sin is that made us lost. I gotta go back into the first 
three chapters of Romans briefly. Briefly. Here's what Paul said, our real problem. I want to tell you this before we get there. The sins you sinned this last week aren't your real problem. They are a problem. But if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, the sins you're stuck sinning are not your actual problem. Paul told us what our real problem is. All humanity, this is our problem. We suppressed the truth, we bought the lie, and we made a terrible exchange. The truth is, there is a God out there who created me that I'm accountable to. If I'm not okay with him, I'm going to be condemned. That's the truth. My best life now is a life spent glorifying, honoring, and thanking the God who created me. That's the truth. We suppressed that truth. We didn't like that truth. We kind of believe we have enough evidence to know there's a God out there. We just don't want to live like it. We have bought the lie that says my life will be better if I make life about me, keeping me happy, getting me popular, having me excited and fun and all that stuff. That's the lie. That's the terrible exchange we made. We exchange the truth that pursuing God was somehow worse than this lie that pursuing all this other stuff would be better. That's our problem. Then in chapter 2, Paul told us, all the sinny sin sins we sin, that's actually the wrath of God that's already showing up in our life. That's when, when I make that exchange, I wind up entangled in all of this stuff that's not going to do for me what I hope it will do for me. It's going to let death seep into my life. Death is always what? It's always a separation. Does your sin cause separation in your relationships? Does sin cause junk in your own heart make you feel distant from God? Yes, yes, yes. That's why it's the wrath of God because he can't do anything worse to you than let you follow something that takes you further away from him. And the gospel doesn't just, it doesn't just free me from the filthy language and the pornography habit and the whatever else. It will, don't get me wrong, but only if I understand that's what I'm saved from. That's what gets undone. The gospel is where I see, oh, because I may need to be saved from my own self-righteousness. Oh, I get it. That's where my sin went. That's where my sin was punished. That's my only hope. I don't have to try to measure up anymore. And I also don't have to feel so defeated when I blow it again because I'm accepted by God because I look like Jesus Christ to him. And I cannot improve on that. So when I blow it, I go right back to God and say, oh God, I bought the lie again. I thought that thing would make me happier than pursuing you makes me happy. I was wrong again. Will you forgive me? Absolutely. And like we said this morning, we'll sing that song of acceptance and joy over us every single time. And the punishment I receive when I chase all that stuff and I get stuck back in those sins again, like that's a result of me continuing to buy that same old lie. And that's what the gospel rescues me from. It restores me into my actual purpose. Because the reason I was put on this earth is to glorify and honor and thank my God with my life. When I get rescued by Jesus Christ, I actually have the opportunity 
to make him look good with my life. So I'm not trying to make myself look more moral than you. I'm trying to make him look good because he rescued me and I don't chase some of that stuff anymore. But not so that I look more moral, not so that I look better, not so that I'm above. Because Jesus Christ is better than all that stuff. So does the gospel teach, you can, oh, I just believe in Jesus. You can sin whatever, sin, 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 you want to sin. No, because you're actually chasing the wrath of God, if Romans chapter 2 is correct. The gospel puts us back into a relationship with God and gives us a chance to glorify our creator and to believe the truth that that's my best life right now. Amen? Pray with me. Father God, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for saving us through it. God, forgive us for continuing to buy the lie that other things can give us more joy than than our creator can. God, if there's folks here who have never understood the gospel, I pray you'd work in their heart to just place their faith in Jesus Christ and to understand glorifying, honoring, pursuing the one who created us through faith in Jesus Christ is where life is best. God, if there's someone else here that's stuck chasing the lie, for you to work in their heart to bring about repentance. But the change of mind that says, that's not what's best for me. It's only going to let death seep into my life. help them and me and us to turn back from the lie, believe the truth, glorify, honor, and thank the one who created us. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.